0: This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com. All right, I have repeat guest Richard Wright. Uh, Always welcome back to the show with a lot of interesting information. How are you doing, Richard?
1: Doing fine. Nice to to talk with you again.
0: Yes, and you have a lot going on. Let's talk quickly. This uh, podcast is going to be about Harry Batoya, but let's talk about your new venture in New York City.
1: Yes, in November we opened a space in new york in the 980 madison avenue building um sort of a, a fame famous building in new york that's 76 in madison um uh, sotheby's part uh, uh or park burnett was uh, ran an auction house out of there and, and then partnered with sotheby's uh later on mm-hmm. so it's sort of a it's got a good pedigree um and it's 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 a really fine building we opened there in november and we did our, you know, we just did our first exhibition, um, which which we
0: launched with uh, the work of Harry Bertoia. Wow, that's great. And so I know exactly where that building is. I've been there a number of times over the years. I can't wait to, vi- to visit next time I'm down that way. Uh, do you frequent the gallery yourself?
1: Yes, I, I'm
0: there at least once a
1: month. Um, and during the busy season, I'm there, you know, two or three times a month. Um, so we're, you know, someone, someone from Wright, Chicago is there just about every other week.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Um, I, by the way, I don't know if I've ever said this to you before, but I go to Chicago quite a bit and, um, I have to stop by your place when I'm out there. I, I really love that city. It's my favorite. Oh, you definitely have to come by. We have a huge building here in Chicago and it's, I'll give you the tour. It's fun. Great. Great. So let's talk about Harry Batoria. He's a, a person that has fascinated me and it was only about I'd say about 15 years ago, the first time I saw one of his sound sculptures, I had no idea what it was. I thought it was a real peculiar-looking piece, and um, ends up it. I watched it. I followed this thing all the way through auction. It went for quite a bit of money. His things can really command uh, good money, and for good reason. What do you know about the beginnings of uh, of Bertoya and how he got started on his path?
1: Yeah, well, Bertoia was born in Italy. Um, He immigrated to America, uh, to the Detroit area when he was a teenager. And through going to school in Detroit, um, he was was, uh, doing metal classes and in some sort of extracurricular activity, arts-related. And through his, you know, he was pretty much immediately identified as having talent and he was awarded a scholarship to Cranbrook. Um, he went to Cranbrook in the late 30s, which was just a magical time to be at that school. Um, he ended up completing his course of study at Cranbrook and then went on to become the first head of the metal department, um, where he ended up becoming a teacher. He was there during the prime years when Aero Saarinen, you know Elio Saarinen helped found the school. Um, but he was there when Eros Aaron and Charles Eames and uh, Maya Gretel and sort of all the the luminaries um, were there. It was the, the initial sort of uh, uh, kind of magical moment at Cranbrook. Uh, I think Cranbrook really informs his training. You know, the, the concept behind Cranbrook was multi, multi-disciplined, you know, training, um, where you were encouraged to try different mediums and to experience different things and to think of art and design. They didn't, they didn't you know... They didn't make walls between the two, um, so everything was quite fluid. It was it was really uh, a lot of emphasis on materiality, and and you know the sort of you know uh, learning the visual language, and I think that his work grew grew out of that. And at that time, um, he started making um, you know small pieces of silver silver work, and then jewelry, and then that that became uh, sculpture. Of course, while he was there, he was uh, became friendly with Charles Eames. And when Eames went uh, to the West Coast and, and started his own studio, his, the Eames office, he invited Bertoya to come out. And um, Harry went out and worked in the Eames office for a relatively short period of time. Um, but he really, I, you know, I don't think anyone knows for sure what his contribution, how full, how, how complete his contribution was, but I think that he, he was always drawn to metal, and I think that if you look at the structure of the chair, and later on uh, Eames develops a wire chair that is, you know, dead on, very similar to Bertoya's own work, um, you know, Bertoia always thought that Eames was torturing the plywood and encouraged him to consider working in metal, that it was a more, a more natural way to make those compound curves. Um, he worked at the Eames office for a very short amount of time um, and actually had a falling out with Eames because Eames famously did not like to share any credit. He was uh, really had quite a large ego.
0: Really? Huh.
1: And at that time, um, uh, Bertoia was approached by Hans Knoll and was offered an opportunity to... Designed a line of furniture for Knoll. He decided to take that opportunity and move to Pennsylvania. And he ended up buying property near the Knoll factory in Valley, Pennsylvania. And he was to spend the rest of his life there. Bertoya designed one line of furniture in 1951, um, his famous wire furniture, which includes the diamond chair, um, a side chair, um, in lounge seating, and went on. It's been in, in continuous production ever since. Right, um, yeah. Incredibly successful design. Um, and it was, you know, really, as I said, it was his only true design, you know, uh, uh, effort. He didn't go back to design. He really thought of himself and was a sculptor. But the uh, income from the success of the chairs allowed him to focus solely on his art for the rest of his life. Um, He was a very humble man. He really liked to make. He liked to work. He was, you know, not about self-promotion. He was about making the work.
0: Now, I understand Um, that he never signed anything or he rarely did.
1: He, to my knowledge, he never signed anything.
0: Hmm. Um, You know, uh,
1: there's... uh, I, I think, again, to me, it speaks to his his um, kind of a, a very small ego. I mean, I think he felt that his work was easy to identify, which I believe it is. Um, it stands, you know, it's distinctive. It stands out and stands for itself. And he didn't he didn't he didn't sign it. He didn't make a big a big mark. Um, Never really did, but through his connections in the design world, he started to show his sculptures through the Knoll showrooms. Um, but then he also started to do architectural commissions, and they form a very important part of his of his output throughout his life. Um, and he gets some pretty significant uh, commissions right off the bat. Um, very early on, he does um, the, the uh, Chase Manhattan Bank on um, in Park Avenue in New York uh, and does a fantastic multi-panel screen of, of, of gilt metal. Um, gets a lot of attention. It's in a modernist building. And he goes on to do, I, I, don't, I should know, I can look it up, but I don't know the exact count, but... Uh, 50 to 100 public commissions, a really successful part of his output. Wow. At the same time, he's, you know, continuing to evolve his own sculptures on different scales um, and really, you know, was very, you know, he, he was very productive. Um, we don't know the exact number of sculptures he made. The best guess is somewhere between five to 8,000 sculptures oh, my
0: in his lifetime. Wow. You know, you ne- I think of sculpture being much more time-consuming than a painting, and you never, you rarely hear of artists that have that type of number of paintings associated with them. For an artist to be able to have a success so early on, I, and when he made the diamond chair and those other wire chairs, to be able to do his art, um, that must have been a, a real wonderful gift for uh, a talented artist like himself.
1: Um, I think it was. I mean, but I also think it's interesting now, t- in a, in in sort of a contemporary viewpoint. Um, I think in some ways his stature as an artist is held back a little bit by his association with design, um, and it was held back in his day by his public commissions. At that time. Doing public art in these in this corporate setting was considered um, to be a bit of a compromised position for an artist to take. That you weren't making pure art. That you weren't, you know, you were you were you were working on commission. That that was uh, somehow made the output less valuable we don't hold those same attitudes today and we we really have grown to cherish public art and understand you know the the importance of it um but i think i think that that was a, a you know it has held back his reputation he's very well known in one way but i think he's very underrepresented in another i think the 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 way that he fits into art history um, is still um, is still really has yet to be determined in a way um, he 's in many museum collections but he 's not often part of the story and you know I think that that is you know to my thinking some some of it has to do with you know, the success of those chairs that was at one time was in nearly every museum cafeteria or, you know, mm. a restaurant had Bordeaux chairs um, and maybe made it harder for the curators to look at the sculpture with as pure eye as they should have. Um, I'm hoping in the future that, that we'll continue to see a reevaluation of his work in sort of the art historical place that it represents.
0: Now, I know, uh, well, first of all, I want to say to the listener, To please head over to our website. um, If you're listening on iTunes or other sources, it's antiqueauctionforum.com, and we'll have some images up there that are actually from the um, exhibition that you're having, Richard. Um, So we'll have those on our website, so you can see the different types of sculpture that he did. The sounding sculptures are sort of like you know wind chimes, or they could be wind chimes, Um, and. I do know, I I do want to talk to you about this part because also, as I mentioned earlier about another uh, Bertoia sculpture I was involved in, um, it ended up being fake. So there are people knocking them off to look exactly like the pieces that um, Harry did. And how does one determine if uh, a piece is right or not?
1: Um, uh, The Bertoia studio authenticates the work. Mm-hmm. um so you know all the work that we offer um, is authenticated by the studio so you can get certificates of authenticity um you know that's a pretty straightforward process so you know that's we rely we work with Val Bertoia to vet all the Pertoyas that we handle. While there are copies, if you've handled much of the work, they actually, we are almost never confused. Uh, Okay. There is a real difference in the quality of the way the pieces are constructed, the quality of the metal, um, and and I've never, uh, I mean, I've sold over 500 sculptures there might have been one time there was even a gray area for us um, that we solved by working with Val. So, mm-hmm. you know, we, we certainly, we, we work well together, um, and he checks off on everything that we we handle. And, you know, so it's, it's pretty straightforward. So I think the market can have confidence in that sense. Um, there's, you know, I think there's a perception that there's a lot of copies. There really aren't. Um, there's one tabletop spray form that that is just a bundle of stainless steel wires that sort of, you know, sprays out like a ponytail. Mm -hmm. Um, That one is, wasn't really copied. It was just knocked off and it's not a very interesting form. We just, you know, those are a nightmare. Uh, (laughs) So with one asterisk, you know, to, to, to say those forms, Nothing else we really have any, any issues with. Valbertois is the last, you know, the final word on that all. So I think, you know, it's, it's not, not an issue in the real marketplace.
0: Now, I um, got to handle a really cool piece, um, and I just remembered it now as we're talking. I know that he didn't do a lot of the wire work um, at that time, but it was actually a wire um, sculpture. It was a bulbous thing that actually hung from the ceiling. And we had that checked out, and it was uh, definitely his work, and it sold pretty well. Oh, that's great! Was it a cloud form? It was. It, it was some type of globular thing. It was very unusual. Okay. And um, I had never seen one before or after, but um, it was uh, it was given the the green light. Hmm. Yeah, sounds great. I love I love the early wire pieces. Yeah, yeah, and. Now, the family is still actively involved in the estate?
1: Yes, Val Bertoia has maintained the, the um, home and studio. Um, uh, it later... In his career, Harry, does, you know, came upon the sounding sculptures. That's his last major development. Um, he doesn't make sounding sculptures until the '60s, and he ends up spending the rest of his life pretty much doing sounding sculptures. He became very intrigued by the the, the interaction of the sound with the visual sculptures, and develops a. Performance installation known as the sonambient installation. Sonambient was a word that he sort of made up huh? um, to sort of, you know, give an idea of the the oral quality of of these works. So he had a barn in his studio uh, on his property. And he ended up turning the barn into into its one work of art called the the um which has over seventy uh, sounding sculptures in it. Mm. And, and he, you know, through through his you know the end of his life, added to those added to those sculptures, and then would perform um, and play play them. Um, and the results were not really you know, I don't think he was going after a type of music. He was going after a more of an experience. And I think that, that the experience of hearing the, the, the vibration from the sculptures and seeing the visual movements is really quite interesting. He made a series of, of LP record recordings of these. So you can, you can still buy them today. Either they show up on eBay and, and such of him, uh, you know, sort of playing the Sun Amiant installation. Val, um, still does this. Um, you can go, you can make an appointment. Uh, he does it in, 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 you know, in the summer, um, and, and has tours of the property and then he gives performances of the Sun Amiant works.
0: Wow. Um, now, have you ever been to the property? I have. Nice.
1: It's really beautiful. Um, you know, it's set out in, you know, rural Pennsylvania in the rolling hills and, um, it's, you know, there's some, uh, some of the landscape is dotted with some of his large outdoor sculptures and, uh, Val's done some sculpting in his own
0: right. So some of his work is out there. Um, so it's, it's, it's a, it's a fun day. Now, what is the largest sounding sculpture that he did? And I'm assuming that it's for an outdoor use. Yes. Um, I,
1: you know, I don't, I, I don't know the, exact answer to that question, but um, we handled some works from the Standard Oil Commission here in Chicago. We had 15-foot examples. Um, I've, I think wow. of probably 18 feet is, um, is the the largest that I've heard of. Um, so pretty monumental. And you know, we, when we handled the, um, the, the Standard Oil ones, we had three giant sculptures. You know, they're... 10, they ranged in size from 10 to 15 feet high, and they were 20 feet long. If you were to get the rods, you know, if you were to, to, to make the rods connect, it was a thunderous sound. And then it would just go on and on and on. It was great mm. to just kind of, you know, hear it, hear it uh, go. Um, he was very interested in the idea of, of infinity and the idea of, you know, travel and this sort of, you know, infinite connection. And a lot of his work speaks to that. There's sort of a radiating out from a central point. There's sort of the unbroken line. And he really um, grew to feel that the audio waves emanating from the sculptures continue out into space, they don't stop. And then that, mm. that was a connection to the infinite.
0: Wow. Now, did he ever cross paths with Alexander Calder that you're aware of? He did not.
1: uh, um, You know, he was not... I think you know he was he was well known in the architecture and design circles. Mm-hmm. He did he did um, he was later on in his life repped in New York by Stemfley Gallery. He had a gallery representation in Philadelphia and in Chicago, and in Detroit actually. Um, but he wasn't you know he he was really a man that was in his studio working. Mm. Um, he wasn't about going to the parties, and you know, he wasn't included in a lot of uh, museum, you know, uh, retrospectives or, you know, uh, you know, uh, biennials or any of the the sort of larger art world, you know, uh, you know, sort of community building. Mm-hmm. Events. Um, so he is in a way a bit of an island. Um, and I think, you know, I think that makes him hard to categorize again in an art historical, um, method, but, or, or manner, um, but I think and I think there are parallels to Calder, certainly just at the human level. Calder was a man that would, you know, couldn't keep his hands still. Mm-hmm. You know, he was always making. He was, you know, if you were sitting at dinner, he would bend, you know, the the champagne, you know, wire into a, <laughs> into a little form. Um just, oh, just so wow. very creative, you know, just couldn't stop. Um, and Bertoia was definitely that way. I mean, it it was that same where I think the work became the life. Um, and that's, you know, Mm -hmm. that, that's where he wanted to be.
0: Right. Now, what is the, would you consider the most desirable of his sculptures? Is it the sounding ones? You know,
1: I think that that is really individual. I think that there is not, I think that there's a, you know, I think that there's several very important, Bodies of work that are hard to say which is the best. Mm. I think the sounding pieces are the most famous. I think that as as a signature sort of you know invention, as a sort of a new step, I think that it was. Um, I think art historically, it's the most important. I would, I think that is pretty clear in the fact that, you know, it, it, it combines art and sound and performance, um, into, into one, uh, you know, very beautiful visual sculpture. Um, you know, you're meant to touch them. I mean, that's, that's, you can't do that in a museum setting, but, you know, when we have previews, you know, if people are careful, we encourage them to touch them. They, they are meant to be heard. That's, in, that's part of the work, um, but, you know, some of his early wire pieces, his, certainly his large um, installations, his panel forms, um, his beautiful bush form sculptures, you know, these are all mm-hmm. highly sought after and, 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 you know, some of those are real market favorites. So I don't, I don't think that the sounding work is, you know, the only place to be. There are buyers that actually only want to have sounding pieces, there are buyers that Actually, have no interest in the sounding pieces. Um, and, you know, to me, they, they, they share equally. There's, there's, you know, the top work, you know, there, there's, like I said, there's three or four different bodies of work that are equally important to my mind.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, where can someone start if they want to collect? I mean, I know that they generally sell fairly high. Is there any one of his type? Are, are there any type of his sculptures that someone could buy at a certain range, at auction?
1: Sure. I mean, I think the 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 sheer number of sculptures that he created means that a lot of work does come to market, um, which I think actually creates a very active market. I like that there's enough work. Um, we have Bertois and. We've had a for the last 15 years in every major design sale. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's how we ended up selling over 500. Um, there's, you know, always uh, an interesting number that come to market. They're of all different, you know you know, scale and, and, you know, I want to say quality, but it's not like there are bad ones per se. Mm -hmm. There's more complex ones. Um, so I think there are entry level tabletop sounding sculptures that can be had in the, you know, under $20,000 range. Mm -hmm. Um, there are underappreciated series of sculptures that he did. Um, he did a series of, of poured bronze sculptures called spill casts, which are very ab-ex, very, you know, um, uh, in their expression of the direct making. Um, some of these are really great. Uh, they typically underperform at auction, um, so they're, they're an interesting um, body of work to look at for the future. These, the, there's a hierarchy from a market perspective of material, uh, stainless steel tends to be less expensive. Um, so there are some really interesting stainless steel sculptures that are that are you know not not that much. You know, I think the market is active. I think we're seeing a bit of a of a, a moment of, um, in the Bertoya world, and it's it, it's it things are selling well now. But. Um, I don't think that it's a market if certainly if you're, if if you're a fine art collector the price points aren't intimidating. I mean the auction record for Bretoya is 6 high 600,000 under it's under 700,000. Not that that's a, that's, that's a significant sum of money, but that's the very top, mm-hmm. um, you know, record. So, you know, I think that there's a lot, and there's a lot in between. I mean, there, there are sculptures that sell for a couple thousand dollars. So you have the entire spectrum to look at. You have a lot of work that's approachable. And I think you have a lot of room to see the work appreciate, which is, you know, always a nice thought as well.
0: What was that record piece? Um, I'm, I, I think
1: the current record, it's, it's traded back and forth. I think Christie's has the current record now, um, or maybe, no, actually, uh, Phillips um, had it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, for a wire form for a, a kind of a golden, uh, gilt, very fine wires that formed um, a very big screen. Um, uh, really, quite a beautiful piece. We had a we had a very similar work, I think, actually slightly better, in our exhibition in New York. Um, so it's it's uh, they're they're pretty rare, they're early, um, but we were lucky enough to get one. Really, um, nice. uh, a great a great
0: piece. Well, uh, Richard, I want to thank you for being on the show again, and I wish you many successes and uh, good luck with your new place in New York.
1: Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Fun to talk to you.
0: This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com.